Well, hello everyone. It is really good to be with you again today. And I am, yeah, today I'm, I'm excited to share with you today, but I'm also a little concerned. Um, I'm a little concerned because I, I think what, and I'm excited because I think what I have to say is, is incredibly important for us to understand, but I'm concerned because I think it's also one of those things where some of you may disagree with me. Perhaps some of you may be offended by what I have to say, and I really hope that's not true. Some of you may interpret what I say incorrectly, and you may believe things about me which are not true. Um, and so I want to ask, I really, really want to ask for you to have grace for me today as you listen, um, and to do your best to, uh, to abide by the words of our former president, Jacob Zuba, when he asked us to listen properly. Um, so please do your best to do that. I'll do my best to explain and to share as well as I can. And together, hopefully, we will grow together in the Lord. I have entitled my message for today, A Battle for Our Minds, Understanding and Responding to Critical Theory. And for many of you, you're like, uh, what even is that? That sounds like a university topic. Why are we preaching about it? Is it going to be long, dry, and boring? What does it have to do with the gospel? And why are you telling me about this thing that I maybe even haven't heard of before? Those are all very reasonable questions. And I can understand why some of you might be asking them. And so I want to, I want to take a moment and, and do my best to answer them together. So here we go. Let's, let's start. Critical theory is a parent term. It's a term that's describes an approach to social philosophy that I believe has taken root in our universities and our governments. It has taken root in our movies and in our news feeds, and it has taken root in our churches and even in our minds. Critical theory thinking is in all of these places, and if we're not aware of it, it begins to become the way that we think. And that's going to be a problem, and I'll go into why a little bit later. Now, if you haven't heard of critical theory, because to be honest, you may well not have, it's quite an academic term, right? I'm willing to bet that you have heard of at least one, if not many, of the following terms. Identity politics, social Marxism, the cultural hegemony, white privilege, Black Lives Matter, intersectionality, the patriarchy, the LGBTQA plus agenda front social justice, microaggressions. Each one of these ideas is an expression of critical theory in a particular context. So let's take a moment and let's understand what critical theory is. And this is going to be the most technical part of the whole message. I'm sorry, but I, you know, just buckle up and dig in. There's four ideas, right? In its broader sense, critical theory is a social philosophy that operates on four pillars. Here they are. The first pillar is this, is that critical theory sees human relationships as fundamentally understood in terms of the power dynamics between two people, right? And it differentiates those groups into those who are oppressors and who use power to oppress and those who are the recipients, the oppressed, and who are under the oppression of the oppressors. And it measures power in an interesting way. It measures power in relation to the term cultural hegemony. Okay, this is another term. Let me explain it. It's going to be helpful for you to understand this. Right? The cultural hegemony 
is the collection of aspects of a person that are seen as most desirable in whatever culture they happen to live in. Right? The collection of aspects of a person that culture sees as most desirable in whatever place they happen to live. In the West, the cultural hegemony is generally seen as white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered. That means you're not special. Right? It means your gender aligns with your sex. Able-bodied, native-born, English-speaking. The more of those boxes that you tick, white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, native-born, English-speaking, the more of those boxes you tick, the more of those that are true about you, means you have more power in culture. And according to critical theory, and we'll go into this in a moment, right? that therefore makes you more oppressive. Because critical theory doesn't have a distinction between having power and using power to oppress others, either intentionally or unintentionally. And whichever of these boxes you do not tick, white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, native-born, English-speaking, right? whichever one of these boxes you don't tick is one of the areas where you experience oppression. And so if you don't tick more than one box, the areas where your non-cultural hegemony exists, right, is where your experience of oppression intersects. That's what the term intersectionality means. It means you, you experience different areas of oppression that connect together. So if you are black, not white, that's one place where you experience oppression. If you are female, not male, that's another place that you experience oppression. If you are transgendered rather than cisgendered, that's another place you experience oppression. And when it, all of those things connect together is the way, the place you feel the most um, oppression. Okay. So that's, that's the first pillar of critical theory, right? That human relationships are understood fundamentally in terms of the power dynamics between one person and another, and essentially between the one people group and another, depending on how you rank against the cultural hegemony of wherever you stay. The second pillar of critical theory, number two, is this. Our identity as individuals is inseparable from our group identity, especially our categorization as either oppressor or oppressed with respect to whatever particular identity marker we're looking at. So in other words, in critical theory, our group identity is more important than our individual identity. We are defined first and foremost by the group we belong to rather than by our personal identity. <clears throat> and by the way, if your individual personal experience doesn't align with what the narrative of your particular group is, then your experience doesn't invalidate the truth of that group. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. Now, third pillar, Ooh, a little bit of pepper from lunch. All oppressed groups find their fundamental unity in their common experience of oppression. This is the idea of intersectionality that I just described earlier. Right? But this is what intersectionality says and what it says in relation to group theory is that our unity is found in our shared experience of oppression. So when you read about critical theory, you will see that it talks a lot about allies. Allyship plays an important role in critical theory. 
for oppressed groups, they ally themselves together so that you'll often find, for example, that people and organizations who advocate for women's rights will tend also to advocate for gay rights or for transgender rights. Whereas the responsibility of oppressors in critical theory is to lay down their power and then to ally themselves with those who are in oppressed groups. In critical theory, your unity is located in your shared experience of oppression. Okay, that's number three. Right, fourth pillar, critical theory. That the fundamental human project is liberation from all forms of oppression. And so consequently, the fundamental virtue in critical theory is standing in solidarity against the oppressor. It's resisting the oppressor. This is the goal of critical theory. Critical theory aims for liberation from oppression, which it sees as the most significant and the most important goal in human experience. Okay. That is, that is critical theory in a nutshell, right? With me, critical theory is a way of seeing the world which sees people either as oppressed or oppressors. It sees people by their group identity before their individuality. It finds solidarity in the common experience of oppression, and it seeks liberation from oppression as the highest human goal. That's critical theory in a nutshell. So why do we need to talk about it? Why do we need to talk about critical theory? What's so important about it? Well, I want to share with you two reasons. Firstly, I think it's important because what we think and how we reach those conclusions is incredibly important. How we think really matters. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 to 15 says this, and I'll give you the Brad summary version up front. It says, God gave the fivefold ministry to equip the church. Right, that's the preamble. Until we have all reached unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God as we mature to the full measure of the stature of Christ. That's our goal. That's where we want to go. That's why God gave gifts to the church. Okay, fantastic. Then Paul says, we will no longer be infants, catch this, tossed about by the waves and carried around by every wind of teaching and by the clever cunning of men in their deceitful scheming. Paul says there are people that are out there and they are looking to throw you this way and that way with their clever thinking, their clever teaching, and their deceitful scheming. We're going to come back to this a little bit later. But what we think and how we reach those conclusions really matters. Because what I think and what I choose to believe shapes the decisions that I make in my life. And it consequently shapes shapes the actions that I take. And so if I end up adopting an unbiblical or an ungodly way of thinking, then the decisions that I make and the actions that I take are going to follow a similar track. And quite often they're going to have unbiblical or ungodly results. And that's the last thing I want as someone who loves and follows Jesus. Secondly, I think we need to talk about this because critical thinking, critical theory thinking is really insidious. Okay. Slightly big word, my apologies. What do I mean? I mean, critical theory doesn't announce itself, doesn't come out with a banner and says, hey, I'm critical theory, right? It's probably because it's actually critical theory is actually a bit of a Marxist idea and Marxism doesn't really have the best rep most of the time in the Western world, 
Right? The critical theory cloaks itself in good, godly, and biblical terms. Critical theory will often use words like liberation, equality, justice, transformation. And by using words and ideas like these, and because it's so dominant in the cultural narrative that we're a part of, we begin to assimilate its ideas. Because they seem to have, they seem to align with the goals that we have, which are good. And it's difficult to disagree with because when you do, and when you do disagree with critical theory, it often often results in you getting shamed. And that's a really unfortunate thing, which again, we'll talk about a little bit later. So for these two reasons, I really believe it's critical that as a church, we understand what critical theory is. And so that's what I'm going to take some time to do in this message. All right, so that's it. Well done. You've made it through the intro. Good job. That's definitely the most technical part of the message. We've done most of our definitions and new terms and all that stuff, right? So well done. You've done the hard part. If you want, pause the video now, pick, grab a coffee, freshen up, get a new snack if you're peckish. You ready for round two? Good? Okay, let's jump in. Before we go any further, before we start digging into more stuff, I need to make sure that I establish something that's very clear and very important. And that's this critical theory is a pathway to an outcome, right? And its outcome is the liberation of those who are oppressed. Whilst I believe that critical theory is a dangerous, ingenuous, and unhelpful pathway, and I really believe that, that doesn't mean that I don't desire some of the outcomes that critical theory has been used towards achieving. Does that make sense? Right? Some of the things, some of the places where critical theory thinking has been used has been to achieve outcomes that I believe are good and godly and right. And I want to fight for those outcomes. I want to contend for those outcomes. I want to see us as Christians pushing to see that happen in the world and in the church. Right? Racism is a very real sin. It does still exist and it does need to be addressed. Absolutely. There is a horrendous disparity between the rich and the poor in our country. And it is a travesty that desperately needs to change. Justice is a real biblical imperative. And it is God's desire that his children will do justice. That they will love mercy. And that they will walk humbly before their God. That is absolutely what God says. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt us. When we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. We we demonstrate the genuine love that we have for one another. Jesus said to us, when you feed the hungry, when you clothe the naked, when you care for those who are sick, when you welcome in the stranger and you go and visit the incarcerated, he receives those actions on their behalf. And he says, if you fail to do these things, you're actually rejecting him and you face eternal damnation. Right? These are really good and godly and biblical imperatives that I wholeheartedly affirm and I commend you towards and nothing that I say in this message should be understood to negate this in any way. Please listen properly. Hear me here. I I desire these outcomes. I believe in these outcomes. I believe God has called us to contend for these things. But I believe that critical theory is a pathway that purports to achieve these objectives. 
And it's that pathway rather than the objectives themselves that we're going to examine. And it's the pathway, not the objectives, that I take issue with and that I think is a danger for us. You, have you got me? You heard my heart. Please hold that. Right? Don't miss that. Here's what we're going to do in the rest of this message. We're going to examine the differences between the critical theory pathway and the pathway that Scripture gives us. We're going to consider why I believe that critical theory is dangerous in general. And then we're going to look at what happens if critical theory is allowed to thrive inside a Christian community. Okay, those are our next three steps. I'm going to try and not belabor this, right? But we're going to dig into that because I think those are important for us to consider. So let's go into the first one. Where critical theory and Christianity diverge. As we'll see in this next section, critical theory is actually a worldview. It answers many of the same questions that Christianity does, but it gives very different answers to those questions. And these differences are particularly pronounced in three particular areas. When we think about identity, when we think about power, and we think about purpose. So let's pause and let's look at these three ideas as Scripture talks about them and has critical theory talk about them. Identity. When it comes to understanding who we are, Christianity and critical theory are almost polar opposites. They're poles apart. Because in critical theory, who you are is defined primarily by the groups that you fall into. Are you black or white? Are you male or female? Are you rich or poor? Are you English or closer? In critical theory, these group markers are significant because they distinguish you. They separate you from the cultural hegemony that's above you and oppressing you. And they are primary distinctions of your identity. And to the degree that someone else doesn't share these categorizations, they are different to you and they are other than you and they can't understand you. In critical theory, your identity is first a group identity before it's a personal one. You are first a white, you are first white, then a man, then English, etc. before you are Brad. And you can only find true solidarity with those who share your particular group markers. And the best that someone outside your group can and according to them should do is to become an ally. Is to become someone who acknowledges the difference between you and me. But supports you in your identity and in your experience of oppression. But Jesus fundamentally subverts these distinctions through the gospel in two ways. Firstly, before God, we are treated as individuals before we are treated as a group. God looks down and speaks to us and interacts with us and calls to us in a one-on-one fashion. God treats us as individuals. Let me illustrate this to you um, with how Paul talks about Abraham's descendants and the people of Israel. And I'm going to connect two verses to help you with a slightly complex piece of theology. In Romans chapter 9 verse 6 and then Galatians 3 verse 7. Paul says, he says, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. So not everyone who is a part of God's people is actually saved. That's what he's saying. But rather, the real children of Abraham, those who are truly saved, are those who put their faith in God. That's what Paul says. It's those who choose to put their faith, who act individually in response to God, They, um, amongst their group identity, are those 
who receive salvation. Or if I go down to Peter in the story of Pentecost, after preaching to a crowd of Jews, right? God's people, that's why I say that. Right? They ask Peter, what must we do to be saved? And he replies, each of you must repent from your sins and turn to God. You're already God's people, but God wants to deal with you individually. Or we could go to Jesus and the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Right? I could go on. There are many scriptures we could look at. But before God, you are first an individual. Then you're a group. And God will hold you accountable for your actions, not for the actions of your group. Oh, losing my place here. Here we go. Secondly, the gospel subverts the distinctions of critical theories group identity by creating three new group identities that take priority for the Christian over any other. Does that make sense? You with me? Right? The gospel subverts critical theories thinking of group identities because it creates three more primary identities that bring us together rather than pull us apart. Firstly, in the gospel, we recognize that all humans are made in the image of God. And so we share a commonality that binds us together because all that is different about us is still a common expression of the image of God in someone else. Whether we are black, white, colored, Indian, Asian, all of us are made in God's image and we are expressions of God's self-disclosure. That's beautiful. Secondly, all Christians share in the common identity as sinners saved by grace. For all have fallen short of the glory of God, writes Paul. There is no one righteous, not even one. All of us share in the common guilt of sin. But in critical theory, sin is confined to those who are in the cultural hegemony. And guilt is disproportionately assigned to them as the oppressors. However, the actions of the oppressed are seen as justified. Think of the free state fires that we've had recently caused by arson and endorsed by the EFF. Think of the fees must fall protests. I'm not talking about the validity of the protests themselves, but how those go about and what happened as a result of that. Think of the looting and the rioting in America after the death of George Floyd, which was terrible and tragic and ungodly and wrong. Right, the death. But Jesus does not excuse our sin because of our group identity. That's not how it works in the gospel. All of us carry the responsibility for the sin that we have committed. And we find ourselves united because we all need a savior. Because when we actually look inside ourselves, we see that all of us are are sinful and depraved people that just desperately, desperately need a savior. And we've been saved by Christ and we've been conformed into his image. And that leads us into the third shared identity that we have, right? The identity of redemption, that identity of being sons and daughters of the Most High God. Because having been saved, we get brought into God's family. We become members of God's family. We become brothers and sisters together in Christ. And that radically binds us together beyond any distinction that critical theory can make. Paul writes and he says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave 
or free, male or female. There is no longer any of those things for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You have all got equal value before the Father. None of those things distinguishes you above one another anymore. Christianity has a fundamentally different concept of identity to that of critical theory. And the two are inherently incompatible. Okay. That's the first place Christianity and critical theory diverge. The second one is around power and how we understand and think about power. Right. Remember, the principal aim of critical theory is to dismantle power structures which necessarily result in oppression. Power leads to oppression, right? And this conclusion is intrinsically at odds with the teaching of Scripture. See, critical theory sees all power as oppressive, whereas in Christianity, that conclusion doesn't necessarily flow. We recognize and believe that power can lead to oppression and certainly has done so often in the past, but God has also given certain power to certain people for the working of His good purpose. All right? The government, Paul says, is ordained by God and is his servant, which Howard spoke about last week. And remember, Paul says this about an oppressive Roman government. Parents are called to discipline their children, to exercise authority over them. Elders are called to rule with authority, to protect and to discipline the church. These are good measures. These are good measures of power. Fundamentally, God exercises sovereign power over all his creation, then that's not an expression of his oppression, but rather of his right and just government. But according to critical theory, the very fact that God rules is an expression of his oppression of humanity. And so again, this tenet of critical theory cannot fit within a Christian worldview. They don't connect together. Thirdly, let's think about liberation. Right. The goal of critical theory is to fight for liberation. And sometimes this goal of liberation is laudable, particularly when it's about liberation from sin or sinful oppression. But all too often critical theory, it is in critical theory, it is liberation to sin that is being fought for. It's the fight for the liberation of homosexuality, destroying God's design for sex. It's the liberation from cisgender norms. Destroying God's creation of male and female. It's the liberation from the patriarchy. Destroying God's design for loving, trusting, complementary male and female relationships. The reason for all of this is that critical theory is, a mor is morally relative. It fights for the liberation of whoever feels oppressed. Whether or not that oppression is real or imagined. And whether or not the freedom for that oppression is morally right or not. But as Christians, we believe that there is an absolute right and wrong and that God has defined those terms. The critical theory cannot accept that restriction and thus finds itself incompatible with Christianity. Additionally, Christianity's primary aim is to extend the kingdom of God. The liberation primarily in view in the gospel is the liberation from the bondage of sin rather than from the bondage of men. And this is illustrated by the fact that for the first 400 years of the early church that where it existed under direct specific opposition and neither Jesus nor the early church set about to dismantle the Roman power structure that actively sought to murder them. 
Instead, they sought to establish the kingdom of God within that oppressive structure. Excuse me. Christianity and critical theory have different goals, and they have different paths for achieving those goals. Okay, well done. Made it through another section. I'd say we're almost done. We're kind of almost done. We're definitely past halfway, right? And uh, we're now we're going to look at the last two ideas. Why, why do we not just need to avoid critical theory, but why is it actually dangerous? And I believe it's dangerous for a number of reasons. The first one is this critical theory closes down genuine discussion. This happens because critical theory believes that truth is relative and connected to the perspective it's being viewed from. So generally speaking, we believe that truth is verifiable. And the more information that we have, the better we're able to verify what's true versus what's not true. But critical theory sees truth as relative to your social location. Okay, it's another term, right? Your social location is essentially determined by your divergence, by your difference from the cultural hegemony. Right? Remember the cultural hegemony? The degree to which you are not white, not male, not heterosexual, not cisgendered, not able-bodied, not native-born, not English-speaking. Wherever, however many of those places you have, that defines your social location. And according to critical theory, only those who share a social location can truly comprehend the truth of those locations. So essentially what this means is that according to critical theory, those who are members of the cultural hegemony will never see things the same way as those who are not. And therefore they are disqualified from speaking into issues that affect those who are oppressed. Because they can't understand, they can't see, they don't have the truth. The oppressor's role is to be silent and to learn from those who have an experience of oppression. In this way, critical theory values anecdotal evidence over empirical evidence. It values an individual story over correlated data. But it also only does this in one direction because critical theory only values stories that actually reinforce its narrative of oppression. So people who have stories that run in the opposite direction either haven't understood their oppression properly or else they've abandoned the truth of their social location and they've embraced the oppressive thinking of the cultural hegemony. So because of this, critical theory ensures that no one can ever argue against it on even footing. Because we'll never have a shared idea of what is true. Either you're a member of the cultural hegemony and you're unable to understand the truth and should therefore be quiet and listen. Or else you're a sellout who's embraced the, culturally, the cultural hegemonic mindset and therefore you don't have a right to speak anymore because you've left your truth behind. You've forgotten your roots, as it were. And in areas as critical in this country as race and poverty and transformation, Friends, can we really afford to have that discussion shut down? Can we really afford to say to people, you don't have a voice, even if you're my brother in Christ, even if you're my sister in the Lord, you don't have a voice because you don't understand. It's the first reason I think critical theory is really dangerous. Second reason is this. Critical theory is not just a theory. Right? I know that's weird. Right? But critical theory is actually a worldview. By this, what I mean is that critical theory is not just an abstract concept that's contained to areas of race and gender relations that has no bearing on the rest of our lives. If that was the case, then it wouldn't be that bad. 
and we could kind of just put it over there and, and try and ignore it. But critical theory begins to answer some of the most basic questions in life. It answers who we are. So you are defined by your group identity. It answers what our fundamental problem is. It says your fundamental problem is oppression. All right? It says it answers what the, the solution to that problem is. Either you, you need power so you must acquire it, or you have power, therefore you must divest yourself of it. It, it, it answers the question what our primary moral duty is. It says the primary moral duty of man is to fight for liberation. And that's how we should live. To seek always to bring liberation for the oppressed. And what this means is that when we begin to embrace the tenets of critical theory in isolated areas of our lives, it invariably bleeds over into all other areas as well. You can't really be a logically consistent three-point critical theorist. That's a super bad theology joke for some of you Calvinists out there. When we begin to accept the ideas of critical theory, it either begins to taint the way that we think about everything, or if you're not self-reflective enough for that, you become logically inconsistent with your own value system. And that's a really dangerous thing. That's not how I want to live. That's not how I would hope you want to live either. The third reason I think critical theory is really dangerous is that I believe that there is a spirit behind critical theory. And I don't have the time here to offer you the proof for the statement because we're already 30 minutes in, right? And, and you're all not off perhaps, but I'd be happy to engage with anyone who wants to. But let me read to you from 1 Timothy 4, from 1 to 3. It tells us, it says, Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last time some will turn away from the true faith and they will follow deceptive spirits and the teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars. Their consciences are dead. They will say it's wrong to be married. And it's wrong to eat certain food. But God created those foods to be eaten with thanks by faithful people who know the truth. Let me give you an example in the world that we are living in at the moment. So this is the world we're living in at the moment. This, this last times. Right? Give you an example some of you might know about the Black Lives Matter campaign and the hashtag. You may or may not know that there's an organization behind that hashtag. You may or may not know that they have a website. They used to have an About Us page, a manifesto page, which they took down. Right? You can find the link in the description below on my reference list right? if you want to see what that said. One of the statements on that manifesto read, we exist to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family. They said, we don't think kids should grow up in a loving family of a mom, a dad, and some brothers and sisters. That's what they're saying. Why are they saying? Because they want to exclude dads. That's why they're saying it if you read the rest of the statements. That statement doesn't come out of a vacuum, friends. It comes from a demonic agenda. And this is not about Black Lives Matter and not about the organization, even though it does, it is strongly like critical theorist. But this thinking, critical theory, doesn't come from human reasoning. I believe it is demonically inspired paradigm of thinking that is masquerading as an angel of light. And its chief aim is to bring about the destruction and the subversion of a godly worldview. And it wants to sow and perpetuate discord among the peoples of the earth. That's a big statement. I, I know that's a big statement. 
I really believe that. And if I'm right, if I, and I may be wrong, but if I'm right and I believe that I am, there are two implications for us. We need to recognize how serious this agenda is. It's not just a wave of thoughts, but it's something that the enemy is using to damage, damage what God has established in the world. And that's a big thing. But more than that, we really don't, we need to make sure that inside God's church, we don't adopt a demonic worldview. That would be terrible. Secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, means we need to not take our disagreements about this thing out on each other. We must recognize, as Paul told us, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of the world's darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's where our battle comes. When we're fighting a spiritual battle, that's where we're going. Our true enemy is the real enemy, and it's not our brother or sister in the Lord. So let's never demonize one another. Because they have embraced parts or all of critical theory. Because they think differently around this thing to us. Let's love one another and work together to find the truth and the unity in Christ in our arms. Alright. Third round done. Well done. Final round. You ready? Okay. This will be the shortest so far, I promise. What happens if we don't confront critical theory? What happens to the church if we don't deal with this way of thinking, this worldview that is invading our ranks? I want us to think about this for a moment. Because my concern over critical theory is not simply a theoretical concern. It's not, I'm not just some weirdly academic guy right, that likes to speak on weirdly academic ideas. It's a very, very practical one. See, we're part of the church in South Africa. We are wrestling with the aftermath of one of the most evil, divisive social structures in modern history. And we just can't afford to let the waters get muddy because we allowed an ungodly worldview to infiltrate God's church. I've been part of many discussions over the last few years where the presence of this way of thinking has made some already sensitive discussions even harder to have. So it's out of my love for us as God's church and my desire to make sure that we find godly solutions to the very real challenges that we face that I want to bring these concerns to you. I want to share with you some of my concerns. See, when critical theory is present in our discussions, it becomes incredibly difficult to, to value or to even seriously consider an idea that doesn't fit into the critical theory narrative. That's the first thing that happens if we don't confront it in our community. Let me give you an example. I've been a part of a number of transformation discussions over the last couple of years, right? And those have been good discussions, hard discussions sometimes, but good. The lived experience of some people has been that they've come to church and they've found that people are not friendly when they arrive. Now, we're not, I'm not debating that experience. I'm accepting it as true. Now, let's ask the question, why might that be the case? One reason might be that white people are choosing not to talk to people of another color. That might be a reason. Another reason might be that people are generally selfish and they choose to speak to those people who are already their friends when they come to church. Another reason might be that the person who came was shy and they hid at the back of the church and they avoided eye contact and they slipped away quickly afterwards. 
like most of you introverts did the first time you came to church. Just joking, I promise. But when critical theory thinking is present, only the options that fit that narrative are considered. And so when you suggest that there might be something else contributing to the situation, it becomes really hard to recognize that and to see it because critical theory gives us a lens that makes it hard for us to acknowledge anything that doesn't fit that narrative. Because truth is determined by our social location. And so if you are saying that something else might be the truth, well, it's because you actually, or might be the cause, you haven't understood the problem properly because you're not there. And that actually makes the real problem so much harder to identify and address. Because we can't actually see it for what it is. It's the first reason, the first thing that happens when we don't deal with it in Christian community. Right. Another very real problem, and this is something I see and it breaks my heart, is critical theory puts a focus on victimhood. So it views everything through the matrix of oppressed or oppressor, right? These are the primary categories, the fundamental lens through which you're called to see yourself. And friends, if we adopt this lens, it has massive consequences for our self-image, particularly if you accept an identity that says you're an oppressed person. It means that you always see yourself as a victim and it reinforces the idea that everything that happened to me is not my fault and consequently there's nothing I can do about it. Some things may have happened to you that are not your fault, but it's unlikely that everything is the case. And this emphasis on victimhood creates a pervading sense of helplessness, which only actually makes the problem worse. And additionally, it it prevents the oppressed person from ever seeing that they may have contributed to their situation. They may not have, but they might have. And and to suggest that is called victim blaming. And then you get shamed for blaming the victim if you suggest it. And if the victim can never take blame, but if the victim can never take blame, then we can never take responsibility for our own lives. I listened to a doctor once telling a story of how he had tried to help one of his overweight patients to live a healthier lifestyle because he wanted them to decrease the health risks that they were facing. Very real health risks associated with obesity, well established. But his very appropriate concern as this person's doctor was shut down because he was told he was fat shaming them. He's just picking on my identity as a fat person. That's my space where I experience oppression. And you as a fit person are shaming me. Critical theory is actually so damaging to those it purports to help because it reinforces this identity of victimhood on them and it removes from them the initiative to progress out of that space. Finally, and if I may say so, perhaps most heinously, critical theory undermines and disrupts genuine Christian community. See, here's the thing. One of the things we need from one another in the church is to spur one another on towards righteousness. This means we need to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. It means we need to help one another recognize and repent of where there's sin that's been found in our lives. But when critical theory integrates itself into our community, it sows fear and distrust between genuine brothers and sisters. Imagine for a moment that I, as a white male, have seen sin in my friend Wilson's life. Wilson's one of the champions in my life group. Hey, Wilson. 
Uh, didn't know you were going to get a mention. Right, Wilson's a black guy. Great guy. And I haven't, but imagine that I did. Right. Now, when critical thinking theory, critical theory thinking is present, it's sort of a tongue twister. Do you know the kind of fear I have to deal with if I want to help my brother towards righteousness? Because I'm afraid now that if I call him out on this thing, what happens if he plays the race card? What happens if he says to me that, Brad, because you're white, you don't understand? What happens if he says that because you're white, Brad, you don't have the right to call me out on this? This is, just, this is a cultural thing. What if, what if he thinks that I'm actually only saying this because I'm white and subconsciously I want to put him down and actually I just want to feel superior to him? It's not the fact that I have love for him as a brother in my heart. What happens if he misses that and doesn't see that? What, what if for Wilson, on the other hand, he faces the temptation. He's got the card to play. So now he can hide behind a real sin issue with the, with the shield of race. Right? What, what if he thinks, when I, when I bring this to him, he has the temptation to think that I'm only calling him out on it because he's a black guy and because I'm an oppressor and therefore I want to be better than him. He's got the temptation to distrust me in my motives. Do you see what critical thinking does to a Christian community? It, it destroys the unity for which Jesus died. It begins to breed suspicion and envy. It begins to breed bitterness and selfishness. It allows us to, to call each other names, calling, calling one another racists, calling one another social Marxists. It allows us to shut down conversation and it destroys the love and the trust that God desires there to be amongst brothers and sisters in the Lord. Critical theory is so toxic to the church that Jesus died to create. And I can't stand behind something that does this kind of damage. It's why I've taken this long time, and I'm really sorry about that. I really am, to share with you today. Because I want to warn you about one of the demonic cancers that I believe is trying to invade our church. And it's already partly here. And it's seeking to pull us apart from within. Paul charged the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He said, I want you to guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd my flock, God's flock. His church that's been purchased with his own blood over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. That's why I've shared this with you today. Because I love this church. And I believe that each and every one of you is a critical part of it. And I love all of you as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And God has called us as the church to model real, beautiful, Glorious reconciliation to the world as one new people in Christ. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer black or white, but we are brothers and sisters together in the Lord. And I really can't stand to see this divisive worldview destroy that for which Christ died. And so my, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, it is my plea to you today as you watch this. To watch out for critical thinking, critical theory thinking. To, to ask God to examine your heart so that you don't, you don't begin to accept it and believe it. And if, if you disagree with me, you're more than welcome to do that. I would love to chat to you. I'd love to chat in person. Um, if, you, if some of the things I've said today have offended you, I'm really sorry. And it's never been my heart. 
And again, I would love to have a conversation with you. Let's pray together and let's ask God to build us and to grow us in incredible unity for his church and his body. Father, we come to you today and we just, we thank you, Jesus, that in Christ, in the gospel, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. You preached peace to those who were near and peace to those who were far away. And you brought us together and you made us into one new man, one new body. We are the church. We are the temple of the living God. And in you, our divisions are are no longer significant. But we are new and whole and one together. And I pray for us, Lord, I pray for us that you would give us grace to recognize ungodly and demonic thinking that would seek to penetrate into our church and into our hearts. Help us to see that, to identify it, to call it out, to reject it. And God, help us more than all of that, God, to love one another and to grow in love for one another, to genuinely care about each other and to push together and to fight together for the fullness of what you have called us to. Help us to to build our transformation in a good, wonderful, and godly way. Help us to honor one another in our differences. And help us to, to trust and to extend grace to one another as we work through difficult topics together. I ask this, Lord Jesus, in your wonderful and your mighty name. Amen. Friends, thank you so much for being with us today. Have a blessed day further. I look forward to chatting to some of you as you get in touch. Bye-bye.